Back here with uh, attorney Brett Frazier. How you doing? Doing great, Jeff. Super stoked to be here. You're a you're a good friend of Pax. We've met before, but you you uh, born and raised in Alaska, raised in Alaska, or born and raised. Raised in Alaska. My family moved me up here when I was nine, ten months old, and I was raised in Anchorage. So you're one of those like can't say you're born here. I know it's super frustrating. Actually, I hate that my uh, siblings have a social security number that begins with the Alaska digits, and mine's not. Well, what's that? The five. Yeah, it starts with a five. I'm not yeah. sure exactly what it is, but mine starts with a four. Tim, uh, Tim Sullivan, Sullivan family. He was born in like Portland or something or Seattle. Yeah, for some reason, and he's always like, he was on the podcast a while back, and he's like, you know, everybody's just born and raised. Right, it's right. Weird, it's a weird, very, very um, provincial here. I definitely, I sometimes throw myself into the born and raised category just because I obviously don't remember being ten months old. So my earliest memories are of Anchorage, Alaska. See, I have something a bit similar. I was, I was born in San Diego. My dad retired from the Navy after I was born, and when I was like you, know, like a baby, I, I moved to New Mexico. So I spent my whole up until I was nineteen when I moved to Alaska, New Mexico. And so people always say, you know, where are you from, New Mexico? Were you born there? No, I was born. And it's like, fuck, you know, just. Right, right. <laughs> and now I live in San Diego, though I spend a lot of time in Anchorage. So, so you're you're an attorney. Yep. Um, and we, you were in, in town now, and you were hanging out with Paxson. And we got to talking about why we're doing the podcast, um, the Judicial Council, which which has been uh, really under kind of some uh, scrutiny or in the news the last several years, going back to when Dunleavy wouldn't appoint a judge back in 19 with the 45 days. And anyways, we we're chatting about that. And also with the constitutional convention question coming up in November, every 10 years, this is a big topic. And you had actually sent me this, you had written, I call it a dissertation. I don't know. It was very, very, very long piece with Walter Carpinetti, former chief justice, who's actually been on the podcast as well with me back in about three years ago. So, yeah. So there's actually kind of a funny story here. So I graduated from the University of Michigan Law School in December of 2017. I graduated a semester early and I came back. (laughs) Well, I also started a semester early. So I started, I did a summer semester at Michigan and then finished, though I'm class of 2018, I actually graduated in December of 2017. Did you go to undergrad in Michigan too? I went to undergrad here at UAA. I was on the debate team. Um, When did you graduate? 2012. I graduated nine. I was on the... Seven-year plan, though, so maybe we have a little overlap. I mean, I was on the six-year plan, so <laughs> we had a similar trajectory. A lot of people go to school for seven years. Yeah, they're called doctors. Yeah, I, yeah. I also changed my major several times as an undergraduate student. But anyways, so I come back to Alaska to spend several months here before I start work um, as a corporate lawyer in the lower 48. And my first day home, I was on my mountain bike out at Kincaid, and I went over the handlebars, and I separated my shoulder really badly. Oh, like, yeah. Could not lift my right arm. Kale did that a couple of years ago. I heard about that. Same kind of deal. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had all these plans to do some mountaineering, to do a bunch of hiking and mountain biking. And then I suffered this pretty catastrophic injury and I didn't know what to do. And um, I didn't want my brain to turn to mush. And so I reached out to some of the attorneys that I knew were practicing in Anchorage. And I offered to do just basically volunteer work for them. Um, I'm not a member of the Alaska Bar because um, I don't practice in Alaska. So I couldn't, you know, work formally for any of the offices here. But I could, you know, serve as a law clerk or do research for them. I just couldn't hold myself out as a lawyer. And um, 
Someone who I can't actually remember now mentioned that um, Walter or Bud Carpinetti was trying to find someone to help him write an article about the Alaska judiciary and the role of the Alaska Judicial Council and its kind of uniqueness, right? Alaska is one of the few states that has this um, merit-based selection system for judges, and I actually kind of became obsessed with it. I mean, I really enjoyed writing the article. I, I kind of really went down the rabbit hole. And um, I actually presented the article at the um, Alaska Bar, the Alaska Law Review's uh, biennial um, conference. And that was in October of 2018. I, I presented this paper. Uh, but actually left me to present it alone, which was a little intimidating. But uh, I think I held my own. Bud didn't show up? He, I think he actually had some advocacy elsewhere. I think he was doing yeah, something. Yeah, because he has that group, the uh, Justice Not Politics. Correct. Um, which, which they kind of advocate for, for the, you know, the judicial system. Um, so it's really interesting. It's very long. I, re- I read, I'll be honest, I read most of it. <laughs> okay. There's a lot of citations, very legal with the citations. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of it just because of with the landmine and being in, in Juneau and, and especially in 2019 when there was this big issue with, uh, this crisis essentially where Dunleavy, you have, I think 45 days once the names get sent to pick somebody for this, whether it's Supreme court, superior court or Supreme court. And he didn't like the names, you know, he, and this has come up before, you know, in the past governors have said, we don't like, I don't like the names. Right. And let's talk about kind of the system and how, you know, some places elect judges, some places, you know, nationally, the president appoints a Supreme court justice or whatever federal court circuit court. And then the Senate confirms, we have a whole different deal where we have this, council of people, um, seven people, and they choose names to send to the governor. So let's talk a little bit about why this came about and, and how it's you know very different than other, other states or the, or the national system. Sure. So first, I will very briefly explain the national system because I think that's what people are most familiar with and then explain Alaska's system and how it's different. So as many listeners will probably know, um, for Article Three judges, so judges or Supreme Court justices appointed pursuant to Article Three of the United States Constitution, the president has the authority to nominate individuals subject to what's called advice and consent by the Senate, which in current practices means a confirmation hearing by the Senate. So recently, um, Amy Coney Barrett joined the United States Supreme Court. She was nominated by President Trump, and then she was confirmed by the Senate. And then, as you know, President Biden appointed Kentonji Brown Jackson uh-huh. as a nominee, who was then confirmed by the Senate. So that's how it works at the federal level. So, you know, and, and I just it, I think it's important to say that the Supreme Court ones get all the note, note, you know all the fame, and everybody's watching. But there's I don't know if it's hundred. There's a lot of of lower court judges that get uh, that we don't really ever hear about too often, and a lot of them are pretty nearly near unanimous, or it's pretty close. But the Supreme Court are the really those are the controversial ones that usually, especially since, I guess, Bork and all that. In the, the yes, age. yes. Robert um, Bork. Yeah, and so for, for listeners who don't know, Robert Bork was a conservative legal theorist in the kind of late uh, 20th century who was nominated by, was it Nixon? No, I think it was Reagan. Reagan, yeah. Reagan it was Reagan. Um, and um, Robert Bork um, had some... <laughs> what was considered by many to be um, pretty radical views on interpreting the Constitution. In particular, he got caught at a question at his confirmation hearing, essentially conceding that there's no right to privacy in the U.S. Well, what was the famous, the question, the qu- there was a question where, I forget the question exactly, but he said it would be a, 
an intellectual feast. Yes. And then one of the one of the senators said, "Well, who's who's at the table? Who's eating?" Right, right, right. Because his conf- that, that was where it really started, where the hearings just kind of went r- r- really kind of off the rails a little bit, and it got you know these people started to ask questions, and it became more televised. And then there was obviously there was um oh my gosh, Clarence Thomas. Right. Another I, one I, that was really, you know, and Joe Biden was a uh, judiciary chair back then. He was. So he's, he's been, you know, he's been around the process for a long time. I think Robert Bork marks the beginning of what I would describe as a more politicized mm-hmm. confirmation process. And there's a great, uh, there's a great, it's a couple years old frontline about, about this. And, you know, McConnell was just in the Senate then. Right. And, and every, the, with, with the frontline, one of the premises was ever since that he kind of vowed you know, revenge and he spent 30 years trying to get, you know, his people, he, the justices he wants in there. And he's, was, Trump was pretty successful getting three out of, right. out of out of nine. So I can actually tie this conversation about the federal system into Alaska system. So one of the ways in which the federal system has become more politicized is to kind of use a, a blunt description. Prior to Robert Bork, I think if you're looking at this in good faith, the Senate, through its confirmation process, really looked at judicial qualifications. They were looking at, was this candidate qualified? And while you certainly would interrogate or look into the kind of um, jurisprudence or political ideology of that nominee, um, it wasn't a key feature, right? And so the confirmation process was focused on qualifications and skill. And there was less attention paid to political biases. So I think one of the- Which is interesting because, you know, Roe Roe v. Wade was in the early 70s. Yes. And you'd think that would have politicized it, but it really didn't. Uh, Roe v. Wade, I think people forget, that was a 7-2 decision. Yeah, right, right. Um, Now, um, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which is a 1992 Supreme Court case reaffirming the core holding of Roe, that case was in, I believe, 1992. It may have been 1993, but it was either 92 or 93, and that was a 5-4 decision. And so when people, I think people sometimes get confused and they say Roe was 5-4, No, Roe was a 7-2 decision with Republican nominees voting in the majority. Um, And then it was in 1992, Planned Parenthood v. Casey was a a more narrow 5-4 decision with Justice Kennedy uh, writing the majority opinion in that case. What what are you, this is just kind of a related question, but um, all the federal judges, Supreme Court, Circuit Court, whatever, their, their lifetime. Yes, life tenure. What do you think about that? I mean, I, I think that's in some ways a good thing because you, you keep independent. But, you know, some of these, like we talked about Kennedy, I mean, some of these people were on the court for 20 or 30 years. It's a long time. So I think the argument in favor of lifetime appointment is that judges who have lifetime appointment need not be concerned about bowing to political pressure because they won't be removed from the bench mm-hmm. for rendering an unpopular decision. And I think the kind of Hamiltonian vision of the judiciary is one that is independent from popular will. Um, A lot of lawyers, you might hear lawyers say this, and it's kind of repeated often in law school, that the Constitution, the United States Constitution, is counter-majoritarian. It serves on a check against tyranny of the majority, right? And so it's, it's helpful to remember that whenever the Supreme Court is striking down a law, they are, you have nine unelected lawyers striking down a law that was duly passed by a legislative body and signed into law by or signed into law by the president in you know federal 
federal cases. And then if there's a state law at issue, uh, a governor. And so every time the Supreme Court is striking something down, they are by definition and necessarily doing something that is counter-majoritarian. So, so one of the parts of the Alaska system is the council, and we'll talk about how the makeup, makeup is, is done, but they have seven people. One's the justice, chief justice, who's a tiebreaker. Um, they nominate these names, the governor chooses, but we also have this extra step of the retention vote. Correct. Which doesn't happen on the federal system, or I mean, I think other states don't have that. So every so many years, the judge, we, we've all seen the ballot, do you retain this person? Almost always they get retained, and once in a while something happens, there's a reason where the counselor, in the case of Michael Corey, the public kind of lost it over this decision. Um, so, you know, let's talk a little bit about the system in Alaska, you know, going back to the Constitution, the, the framers in our Constitution, why did they do the uh, retention portion? Right, right. Um so Alaska's constitution creates a body known as the Judicial Council. And the Judicial Council, as you mentioned, is comprised of seven people. There are three attorneys um, who are selected by the Alaska Bar Association. There are three lay members who are selected by the governor. And then the chief justice serves as an ex officio seventh member. Um, Tie, you know, tiebreaker, right? So I, I, I'll push back a little bit on the word tiebreaker, and here's why. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into this later in the podcast, but to preview this a little bit. It's pretty rare to have a 3-3. Three, three. It's exceedingly rare to have a 3-3. Three, three. And importantly, at the time that I wrote my law review piece um, with um, Justice Carpinetti, we had looked at um, all of the um, Judicial Council recommendations up to that point and in 1.3 how many was it hundreds i assume thousands yeah, it lots. was more than a thousand yeah. i think it was i don't want to say the wrong thing on the podcast but it was in the low thousands um like four digits which um, makes sense every time there's a spot open there's right. at least two names and sometimes there's three or four or five names right and um <coughs> so there were one point in so let me just back up for a second 80% of all recommendations by the Judicial Council are unanimous. All seven people, 60% of, I might have said 80, 60% of the time, it's unanimous. 80% of the time, it's unanimous or unanimous minus one. It's a 6-1 decision. So the Judicial Council, far from being a, a body that is deeply divided and is constantly kind of splitting along lines where you have three lawyers on one side and three governor appointed um, citizens on another side. And then the chief justice or yeah, the chief justice of the Alaska Supreme court coming in, that just doesn't happen. Yeah. There's it's not, there's very, that's rare. a good point. There's not very, I mean, maybe there's been a few, I mean, was there one, so recently it, it was, you know, it's been politicized. Dun Dunlavey has been critical of it and, and the Republicans have historically not, not liked it. Um, I think Hickel had a similar deal where he didn't want to appoint somebody in the 45 days. Yes, there there have been instances where the governor um, initially rejected the names submitted uh, to him or to her um, from the Judicial Council. Um, but just to finish the thought that I was on real quickly, because this is important, you know, um, there were, when, when Walter and I wrote our Law Review article, we identified... 18 instances where the Judicial Council split with three lawyers on one side and three governor-appointed citizens on another side. So in those 18 cases, the Chief Justice has to serve as a tiebreaker, as you put it. 
In nine of those cases, the chief justice sided with the lawyers. And in the other nine cases, the chief justice sided with the three governor appointed oh, so it's members. Split on, and on. it was 50-50. So, you know, I think sometimes there's this belief that, oh, well, if you have a tie, three versus three, the chief justice is just going to side with the lawyers every time. And and as an empirical matter, that's just not true. Um, and, and, I, and I think that that helps demonstrate kind of the professionalism, integrity, um, and hard work that the Judicial Council does to identify the right nominees to send to the governor. The other thing that the, the governor's members are subject to confirmation by the legislature. And we saw recently, this last session, Christy Babcock, who's the wife of Tuckerman Babcock, who's a very conservative Republican. You know, her mom was um, Senate president, or yeah, Senate president, um, political family, and Lida Green. And she was, you know, very contentious confirmation. She ended up getting confirmed. I believe it was, you need 31. It was, it was not that many more than 31. Um, and other times in the, in the past, and I've not been paying that close attention for you know, only maybe three or four years, but I don't know how many times it's been that contentious with a, a nominee by the governor um, in their confirmation by the legislature. I think in general. Usually it seems like it's pretty you know, unanimous or it's you know maybe a few dissenters. but Yeah, I mean, I think just across the United States, we live in a much more politically polarized time than in decades past. And I think that a lot of the controversy around the council has um, come up during that time. Now, to be clear, there have been other challenges to the existence of the Judicial Council. There was a, um, a lawsuit that tried to render, uh, to try to basically dismantle the Judicial Council as, as unconstitutional. That, w- that was unsuccessful. How is that possible? It's in the Constitution. Well, um, the United States Constitution guarantees a Republican form of government, and it also has certain due process rules concerning uh. voting. And so I um, I should have reread that decision before I came on the podcast. I haven't actually read those cases but in that was, that years. Was not, that was knocked down. But it was, it was unsuccessful. And I can actually, at a high level, kind of explain one of the principles that the federal court, and it was the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that issued the final decision, um, one of the guiding principles that the Ninth Circuit Court used. So the United States is set up as a system of what's called federalism, and it's a system of dual sovereignty, where we are citizens of the United States, but we are also citizens of Alaska. And as citizens of Alaska, we have the ability to self-govern in ways where the United States Constitution is silent. And this is one of the reasons why across the 50 states, you see such a wide variety of judicial systems because the the United States Constitution is largely silent as to what states have to do for their state courts. This goes back to the the founding fathers, you know, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, which has always been weird to me because federal, to me, federalism sounds like the federal government. Yeah. But federalism actually means the state power or anti-fed, the anti-federalists were yeah. the ones who wanted the federal power. It, it, it is confusing. I've always and been it's counter, confused by it can those. Be counterintuitive, yeah. But this, this, I mean, this the debate goes back hundreds, you know, to, to the very 
we talk beginning about of the country and it, and it and it goes on today right like, what are the, the contours these, of federalism there's these papers right the federalists i've read a few of them so. the federalist papers yeah the federalist papers were um you know i had a professor in law school who said that the federalist papers were the uh, 18th century equivalent of political blog posts so maybe you oh know, really i like that yeah i mean you have to remember i you know this is kind of a different topic but i think the federalist papers have this sort of reverence and they have this authority particularly in originalist circles. And you have to remember, the Federalist Papers were advocacy pieces. It was Hamilton and... Uh, it, Plubia, was it Mad? Madison, there's yeah. two, two, two of them. Are kind yeah, of Ham, well, Hamilton was the author of the most famous um, Federalist pieces. I mean, he, 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 and he wrote the Federalist Papers, or the Federalist um, pieces concerning the <laughs> judiciary. Um, and Because right. Hamilton believed that the judiciary should be like totally insulated from the popular will, right? Like it can be, it should be completely independent, lifetime appointment. Um, it should have the flexibility to just really override a lot of democratic processes. Um, and so he, he had a, a very particular idea about what the judiciary should be. Um, Though the Federalist Papers, to finish this thought, because I think it's kind of interesting, you know, we talk about them with this degree of reverence, and, and they're great pieces of political writing, but they were advocacy pieces trying to convince state legislatures to ratify the Constitution. These, were not, these are not objective pieces of political philosophy. It's not like Hamilton sitting there, you know— thinking his so they're, they're part partisan yeah they're partisan those are partisan pieces and and i think i i um i'm you know I'll put my cards on the table i'm not an originalist i actually wrote a paper in law school that was called historical fiction in argument against originalism so when you say originalist this is the the, the concept that you know i think uh most famously scalia justice scalia was look it was written those are the words follow the words so a little bit different so if you I think people sometimes conflate textualism with originalism. So textualism looks at the four corners of the Constitution and interprets the text and really the text only. Um, in theory, you could have a perfectly competent reader of English with no knowledge of U.S. history from before the year 1900 read the Constitution and engage in a textualist interpretation. Originalism is useful, if it is at all useful, Precisely because the text of the Constitution doesn't answer every single constitutional question. So you look to sources outside the Constitution to understand what the ratifying public meant when they ratified the words in the Constitution. It's the, the flavor of originalism used in courts and in academic circles today is something called original public meaning. And I guess what, what I meant was, um, and that's a good, that's a good you're, you're right, but what I meant was like if it's not in there not written down, then that's, you know, that's not, there's things that people say that the court needs to get involved in, but it's not, the constitution yeah. silent. You'll have, you'll have to excuse me. I think lawyers tend to be very precise. And just to put it very precisely, I think an originalist would say, if the original public meaning of the words in the constitution did not mean, or did not include, I don't, you know, take your pick, did not include privacy, did not include abortion, did not include whatever, um, then the process to get those things into the Constitution is Article Four Amendment. You'd have to amend the Constitution, and so originalists, I or, think, or, or or pass a law, right? The well, sort of. I mean, like 
yeah, you could you could pass a law, but I think when when we're interpreting the Constitution, I think an originalist, I think the kind of good faith reading of originalism is that, look, um, the, the the Constitution was an exercise in democracy. It was written by people. It was ratified by state legislatures, and through that democratic process, the document itself only protects those rights that those people wanted to protect, right? Um, which, to be frank, was white men living in the 18th century, right? So I, I don't say that as a partisan statement. I don't say that um, in any sort of political way, but it is helpful to remember that the people who wrote and ratified the Constitution were exclusively white men, Um there were no the, the people say the word privacy doesn't appear in the Constitution. Okay, well neither does the word women, <coughs> neither does the phrase air force. But we still think Congress has the authority to create an air force. Um, but I think an originalist would. I say... I guess somebody would say the the common de, I mean the, the defense or welfare and defense. What is it? I guess they would extrapolate that out to mean. Oh, um, yeah, the common defense. Com, common well, well, com- so the co- so under Article One, Congress has the authority to raise and maintain um, an army. And now we just understand that the word <laughs> army also means and Navy, Air, Air Force. Force and Navy. Yeah. I actually think Navy might be in there too. I should know that. But I, I know that Air Force is not because we certainly didn't have F 35s. Uh, well, there was definitely a Navy back then. So there there, sure there was, was a Navy. Was, but I think, there. you know, they can. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's like, um, there are a bunch of things that aren't in the Constitution, um, the United States Constitution, that we just kind of um, take for granted. And I can tie this back to state stuff here with kind of a brief aside. This is a little bit of a nerdy aside, but it's it's something I'm kind of into. So, um, President Ray, there was an attempt on President Reagan's life, right? Someone tried to assassinate him. They just let the guy out of jail. I know, yeah. John, John Hinckley, right? Uh, I don't remember his name. I think it was, uh, we'll pull it up here. I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, he just but got, one of the people who was shot during that assassination attempt was Brady. Brady, yeah. Brady, right? So then Congress passes the Brady Gun Violence Act. And something that the Brady Gun Violence Act did is it required the chief law enforcement officer in every state to collect data about gun ownership and gun sales and then report it to the federal government. So in a... Um, in Alaska, is that the attorney general or the public safety commissioner? I wonder who that would be. Or- that's a good question. I don't know who it is in Alaska, but I know that a, um, a, a, the chief law enforcement officer, and I believe it was Oregon, uh, refused to do so. Said, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, the federal government cannot tell me, an agent of the state of Oregon, what to do. Ooh. And in a, well, I won't say it's a famous Supreme Court case. I think it's it's well known for people who, like me, are constitutional law nerds. But um, in a, a somewhat well-known um, Supreme Court case um, called United States versus um, Prince, the Supreme Court, in an opinion authored by Justice Scalia, said, Constitution, the text of the Constitution doesn't touch this question, doesn't that we have, we cannot look at the Constitution to answer this. So we're going to look at the Federalist Papers. So he engaged in this so, reading. So this is kind of like just to interrupt you. Not even now in Alaska, when I talk about the Council. People will go back to the minutes. Yes, they will say we're going to read the minutes. We're going to see what these folks said and what they meant. Yes, that that, that comes up. Yes, and in that law review article that I sent you, yeah, I, you, you referenced them. Yeah, <laughs> I read a lot of those minutes when I was writing this article. I spent like days pouring through the minutes. Um, from the convention. It was, it was, it was quite the exercise. Um, so Scalia going back to, Oh yeah, real, I'll finish this thought. I know we're here to talk about the, the Alaska judicial council. Um, to put it in lay terms, what justice Scalia wrote and what the Supreme court held was 
um, they established something called the anti-commandeering doctrine, or they reinforced something called the anti-commandeering doctrine, which says that the federal government cannot commandeer state officials to carry out the business of the federal government. So the federal government cannot tell the chief law enforcement officer in the state of Alaska, you, using Alaska resources, using Alaska staff, using employees of the state of Alaska, carry out the bidding of the federal government. See, I mean, I, I, to me, that sounds reasonable. I kind of like that. Oh, I think that case was wrongly... Uh, wait, so you, th- you like that the federal government can't do that? Yes. Yes, okay. Yeah, I, I don't think the gov- government should be using state agents to, to enforce their you know, business, or the... I don't think the state government should, should be using local agents to, you right. know, same, same kind of thing. You know what's interesting? And, and, you know, a great example of this is this fucking, um, uh, this was a late era Obama, a Bush thing that Obama kind of um, put, put um, secure communities. Have you heard about this? I. It's, it's this late era a Bush policy that was right at the end of his term, and Obama really carried it out. And it basically commandeered, it used local and state law enforcement to start um, being de facto immigration enforcement office, officers by asking people who they pull over or they detain for their immigration paperwork. This was in Alaska, it was an issue. There was a guy in the valley, there was a fight, a vicious bar fight. I think it was in Palmer. Dude dude stepped in, broke it up, stopped a woman from being maybe killed. He was he was he was here illegal. His papers weren't in order. And and the cops who, who you know came to, you know, thank him or whatever. He was briefly detained, whatever, um, for doing the right thing. And luckily the ACLU stepped in. I mean, it wasn't even like he was here illegal. There was a issue with his paperwork. It was you know, I don't know, I'm not sure exactly what was going on, but it wasn't like he like snuck over the border and was here like hiding, you know? Right. And this is the same kind of thing where the, the st- states and local governments are, are becoming kind of, we have a thing with the DMV, there was a bill that was passed to turn the DMV into a de facto immigration enforce, enforcement agency. I do think I vaguely remember reading about this. And this is like, this I, is actually, I don't like that at all. This is like a pretty technical topic, but I know that, you know, when you look at the anti-commandeering doctrine and what the federal government can do to compel state actors, where you have like a state federal task force, um, that passes constitutional muster. Well, the state, the state would be agreeing to that point. Exactly, it's it, consent, right? But like the federal government in many cases cannot compel um, state agents, state law enforcement officers or, or anything to to carry out the will of the federal government and to, to, to make what is something of a political statement. You know, I... Prince is a decision that throughout the 90s and early 2000s was celebrated by conservatives for standing up for states' rights, right? Like big bad federal government telling states what's to do, not good. But then I think you saw during the Trump years um, a lot of frustration from conservatives who saw liberal states pushing back on Trump-era policies. That's true. And yeah, look, you're, like, you're right. You're right. If, 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 if you believe that states' rights matter when it's conservative states pushing back on a big bad liberal government, but then – when there's a Republicans in power in Washington and there's a, a state that is controlled by Democrats pushing back on that Republican-controlled federal government, if you also aren't willing to concede that states' rights matters there, then I don't think you really care about states' rights. <laughs> what you care about are, are states' rights when states are asserting rights that you also but, support. Totally agree. And, and this is the same thing with these quote-unquote deficit hawks, you know, and when, when Trump, I mean, huge trillion-dollar-plus deficits and no one gave a shit. Right. I mean, they were like, great. This is, you know, let's cut, cut the taxes. Let's run up the deficits. Uh, if it's Trump, if Republican president, you know, it's fine. If it's Democratic president, we scream and, mo- you know, yep. same kind of thing. It's, it's a huge hypocrisy. It is. And I know we're here to talk about the Alaska Judicial Council, so I can actually segue this to talk about that, which is to say that, um, you know, when we talk about judicial decisions, it's important to remember that 
a judiciary is not a political body, right? It is a body meant to enforce rule of law, and it should be agnostic as but, to but, but political. But isn't it a creature of politics, kind of? Inevitably, it exists in a political system, and so in that sense, it would be a creature of politics. But in what I mean is it, it is a, not a body. The judiciary responds to the rule of law. It doesn't respond to... Um, uh, votes. Vote. Well, well, in some cases it does. Though, it, it, yes, but ideally it is insulated from kind of the vicissitudes of politics, right? Like it's not, you don't have to run for office, at least not in Alaska, although you have a retention election, which we can talk about. But I just want to, I know we're, we should segue to talk about Alaska, but I want to leave the listeners with one thought, which is, is something that I think is important in our really politicized times, which is this. I had a professor in law school. Um, and this is like my first, like second week of law school. Like I, you know, I'd only been there for like 10 days or something. And he, he's up at the front of the lecture hall and he says, you know, um, we're going to talk about some politically sensitive things in, in this classroom and people are going to disagree, um, about, you know, political outcomes as well as judicial outcomes. And here's what I'll caution you. He said, if your theory of the constitution results in the Supreme court always should decide the way my policy preferences happen to align, then you've got a terrible theory of constitutional interpretation. So you should recognize that there are cases where the courts will reach an outcome that might not align with your policy or political preferences, but is still the right decision. And on the other hand, you should recognize that there are some policies that you may deeply support that would be like flagrantly unconstitutional. And this happens to me all the time. I, I am often confronted with a Supreme Court decision that reaches an outcome that I don't like. You know, it, it, it harms people in some way, or I believe it harms people in some way, but I'm forced to concede, like, you know, I think the Supreme Court got that decision right. I think that was the legally right outcome. And then there are other cases where I, you know, I might have a particular policy preference, but I'm just like, it's totally unconstitutional. And so throughout this conversation, and I think just in general, people need to remember that the judiciary, if the judiciary reaches decisions that you don't like, ask yourself why you don't like it. Do you not like it because it reaches a policy outcome that you disagree with because if that's the case i think you have you're talking about some introspection that unfortunately most americans don't seem to want to do or even even think about you know it's it's so charged right now it's like i'm right you're wrong fuck you and i agree though i do but you're but you're right i mean you should these things should be thought about yeah and i think that like you know if we're gonna live in a a a liberal democracy and when i say liberal i don't mean politically liberal i mean like classically liberal Mm -hmm. right like classical liberalism um like john locke style liberalism if we're gonna live in a a dropping john john locke and what thomas hobbs yeah 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 yeah, some some habesian leviathan (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i mean just to kind of put a bow on this um if we are going to live in a self-governed democracy that has respect for rule of law, then I think we have to respect the judiciary as a body that is designed to be counter-majoritarian and has its allegiance to the rule of law for, for Alaska judges and justices. That means allegiance to Alaska statutes, to the Alaska Constitution. And even if that means reaching a decision that a lot of Alaskans disagree with, you aren't doing your job as a judge or a justice if you kowtow to political pressure um, and ignore what the law actually says. So let's talk about the uniqueness of the Judicial Council compared to a lot of states where judges are elected, yep. which I'm personally not a fan of at all, because we've seen so many times where there's corruption and bribery and 
just all kinds of political pressures on these judges who have to get elected. Right. Um, not a fan of electing judges. So Alaska. And, and um, I think this was no- noted by the, by the, the framers of the last constitution. I think by the 1950s, they were able to see like, man, this is, there's some problems with yes. other, other states. Alaska had the benefit of, you know, joining the union as the 49th state. And so seeing what the other 48 states did and um, figuring out what they did wrong. And I think that the framers of the Alaska Constitution recognized that electing judges can really politicize that process and certainly leads to things like corruption. But I also think it just leads to less qualified people serving as judges. And I think the Alaska framers really wanted the focus to be on, um, you know, merit. Like, how good of a judge are you going to be? Regardless of your political beliefs or what you would say on the campaign trail, are you good at your job? And are you going to be a good public judge, right? And so the, they, they, they modeled the Alaska judiciary off something called the Missouri Plan, So Missouri was actually the first state to pioneer what's called merit-based selection. So merit-based selection, which is what Alaska has, uses some sort of evaluation process to weed out, or maybe weed out's not the right phrase, to identify uh, the best judges. Um, So so anybody, any lawyer can apply to be, there's a vacancy in the lower court. And even the Supreme, it's the same process for the Supreme Court or the Superior Court. There's a vacancy, um, People apply. Any lawyer can apply, yes. right? And what makes Alaska unique and what separates Alaska from other merit-based selection systems is Alaska was the first state, and I think today is the only state, though, I again, I, I know that I'm putting this onto a podcast and it'll be around forever, so I want to hedge and say I think, but I think Alaska is the only state that has merit-based selection for all of its judges. Doesn't Hawaii do something a little bit similar to us? I have to go back and, because they were the 50th state, and I know that they... Yes. I don't know if Hawaii uses a merit-based selection system for judges at every level of the judiciary. They might. Um, I honestly don't know the answer to that. But I know Alaska was certainly the first. I can say that confidently, that Alaska was the first state to say, it doesn't matter if you are a Superior Court judge or a Supreme Court justice, we are going to go through the merit-based selection process. So the process is... You have the Judicial Council, which again, um, to remind the listeners, is three lawyers, um, three um, members of the public appointed by the governor, and then the Chief Justice of the Alaska Supreme Court as an ex officio seventh member. They select names to send to the governor, and then the governor nominates. Of of, of people that apply. Yes, of people that apply. And then the governor nominates, and the governor can only nominate based on the names submitted they have to send at least, at least two, two, right? Correct. And they have, sometimes they send many more. Than sometimes them. they send more. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think I saw cases where they sent five, you know, they'll send, they can, they have to send a minimum of two. And sometimes there's a lot of applicants, right? Yes, there are many applicants. Yeah. And 10, 20, I, you know, I don't know. I know sometimes it's been pretty high. Right. And, you know, when the Judicial Council goes through its, you know, evaluative process, they're not looking at the political persuasions of the lawyers. I mean, they're looking really at their skill. And the other thing the Judicial Council does, which um, came later in the 1970s, the Judicial Council also reviews judges and evaluates judges who are up for retention and then issues a recommendation on whether they support retention. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So when Judge Corey lost his retention election, that was the first time in Alaska's history, and today's to this day is the only time, when a judge that received a, a, a unanimous endorsement from the Judicial Council lost a retention election. He was he was a judge for the listeners if they forgot. He ruled on the the guy who there was no law about he kidnapped the woman and he kind of masturbated on her and he you know he got no jail time and it was like a national. Well, case. yes. Uh, Which I, I mean, to be honest, I think he actually ruled correct. I mean, the, the law was the law, and I well, I, and, and I feel and bad that he you know to he be was clear, put in that what people were upset about was that. Judge and it was, Corey, a, it was a plea bargain. That's exactly right. That's it wasn't what I was even his. Say. He couldn't. He right. was. He was not able um, to. It was a plea bargain with with the state. He had discretion to reject the plea bargain. It is. Ex- I'm not a criminal lawyer, but my understanding and based on my kind of review of the literature is that um, in Alaska, but but really kind of nationwide, it, it's rare to reject a plea deal. Well, I also think if you would have rejected it, and I have to go back and refresh myself, but if he would have rejected it, the odds that he would have got, you know, put on the list or whatever, whatever would he have wouldn't been. have gotten put on the list because it wasn't a sex crime. Yeah, so, that was, so, that was the big controversy. So, right. So, so there was, there was anyways, he, he was in many cases kind of I'm not sure if victim's the right word, but I mean, he, he was a very maybe collateral, you know, collateral damage of, of a, of a, of a problem with the law. Yeah. I, I, I think that I think that's true in some sense. Now, I think we can use Judge Corey to kind of illustrate, actually, the system working. Because whether you agree or whether you disagree mm-hmm. with whether removing him was the right thing to do, let's walk through what happened. Um, Michael Corey, when he's a lawyer, um, applies to be a judge. He gets selected by the Judicial Council, gets sent to the governor. Uh, governor nominates him. I, I don't know who else was sent to the governor, but the governor nominated uh, Judge Corey. So then Michael Corey becomes Judge Corey. And then Judge Corey is up for a retention election and the people are able to exercise popular and it, will. And, and it was just, it was just conveniently or not conveniently, right? I mean, the decision was pretty pretty near his retention vote, which I think are every four years. Is it four years or six years? So the first retention vote you have can be no less than two years after you are nominated. And then depending on which court you serve at, your retention election is different. So for Alaska Supreme Court justices, it's 10 years. And for superior court, for appellate court judges, I want to say it's either four or six. And then for superior court judges, I think it's four um, after the initial retention election. Um, I think the initial one is usually three years. So you get appointed, even if you're on the Supreme Court, there's a retention election after three years, and then the next one won't be for 10 years. But look, like, the point I'm making is the Alaska judiciary does a really good job of striking this balance between insulating the judiciary from the popular will and, and, you know, insulating the judiciary from the tyranny of the majority, but also giving the people some voice in the composition of the judiciary through retention elections. So Alaska's system, in my opinion, is a very good balance of recognizing an independent judiciary or the need for an independent judiciary while also recognizing the importance of the people's voice in who the judges are. So you make, you make a good point. I mean, whether you like the decision or not, it is an example of the public having the ability to exercise their will over, in this case, Judge Corey. Exactly. So, um, you know, people can agree. People, people can disagree about... He was, he was, also, he was also subject to a, to a pretty nasty... Social media. I mean, he he was actually. Um, there's also a system where the judges, they, I think this is the 
Judicial Conduct Commission, I believe, rules on this, but they can only campaign against um, or for, for retention if there's an active campaign against them. Yeah. And, and I think the Judicial Conduct Commission, I believe, is the one who decides if there's a an active campaign right. against, in this case, there was an active campaign and, you know, he was able to. But But the other thing for judges, especially Alaska judges who are not ever elected, um, and I've talked, I know some of them, I have some, you know, connections with, and I've had this discussion. They are really almost always in most cases, very bad politicians. <laughs> they just don't have the, yeah. the, the qualities to even begin to understand how to do a, do a campaign, you know? And he was hit hard by social media and there was a group and there was this woman that was kind of leading the, I mean, it was like, real, no more free passes was the name of, um, yeah, it, it was, group. it was, it was a very coordinate, it was national uh, media was all over it. So yeah, I um, I made the mistake of participating in some of those discussions. I I was he needed to hire a really aggressive campaign manager. Yeah. Is what he should I, have done. Um, I was ambivalent about his retention election, but I wanted at the time people to understand the potential consequences of removing him, and um, we can use this as an opportunity to compare elective systems uh, where judges are elected to non-elective systems. So it's really common in states where you elect judges to have campaigns against judges for being soft on crime, Yeah, right? It's a really easy, low-hanging fruit. I saw an ad once where this guy was running for some, you know, judge, you know, judicial position. And he had like a, he was like, had a gun. He was like, I'm tough on crime. Yes. And, and, and like this guy's trying to be like, a fucking judge and he's shooting a gun. The, the first page of the political playbook, if you're trying to remove a judge from office or you're campaigning against the judge in a state where there are, ele- judges are elected, you know, the if a judge has been on the bench for, you know, 10, 12 years or something, inevitably, I shouldn't say inevitably, but it's, it's <laughs> likely that they, issued a decision where a, a criminal, you know, got a perceptively light sentence or something, and the public gets really mad about that. So the, um, the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University Law School has done a lot of research and collected a lot of data on how judicial behavior changes when you subject judges to these soft on crime campaigns. And one of the obvious consequences is that judges, if they're afraid of losing their election, will issue harsher sentences, more frequently impose the death penalty, and almost across the board, put more people behind bars more of the time. And I don't think that that is always the right solution. That just kind of, like, you know, people complain about mass incarceration. It's a politically contentious topic. Um, But I think something that I found frustrating during the No More Free Passes campaign was that a lot of the people who wanted him removed for office are the same people yes, who yeah. um, criticize mass incarceration, yes, who, I, who I, want to see you know a greater focus on rehabilitation, who want to see fewer people behind it, it bars. Just goes, it goes back to your, your comment about um, federalism. You want states' rights until, wait a minute, <laughs> right. wait a minute, you know, we don't want those states' rights. Right. Similar kind of hypocrisy that, that was, and you're right, some of those people that were, were just, just leading the charge against him, I, I see some of them now that, that are, you know, some, some person, some native person or some black, they got, they got they, why are they getting charged with or this, this much time or why are the jails filled, you know? The, the, so it's, it's, 
you know, it's it's there's definitely inconsistencies in some of the in some of the rhetoric. Well, yes, and you know, I have um I know someone who who I will not name who was a public defender, um, and this individual told me shortly after maybe it was like six months after uh, Judge Corey lost his retention election, he said, we're living in a post-Corey world and the prosecutor's offices aren't willing to do plea deals across a wide variety of cases. Everyone's insisting on jail time and even for non-violent, non-sexual offenses, cases that used to reach a plea deal are now going to court and people are asking for jail time. So I don't want to say that I was proved right because this is a case where I hate being proved right, but I think... Anecdotally, I haven't actually looked at data, and I want listeners to know that. I haven't actually collected data on this, but anecdotally, my understanding is that there was a certain degree of fear, uh, you know, among lawyers, you know, maybe prosecutors seen for being soft or, or judges seen, seen for being soft on crime. And I think there was a, a, a greater <coughs> focus on incarceration, and it was harder to get plea deals. And, um, you know, I got, I got just, like, ripped to pieces for saying this. I mean, I just got like totally, totally ripped apart. I had to, I changed my name on Facebook. I deleted my Facebook account for a while. I was getting the, some of the most horrific messages I've ever received in my life. Welcome to a day in my life. I, mean, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I think you've probably not, seen some of my, my Twitter takes and my, you know, I just, it, it, this is a whole different topic, but you know, it's like, it's so hard now for people to say things that, that are out of the mainstream or, or, or maybe, maybe a little contrarian because of just how nasty people can be. And I, I, I just don't really give a shit. I'm luckily kind of insulated. I can insulate right. myself from it. But a lot of people, um, you can't live in a society where you're scared to say what you think. Right. And I think <coughs> something that happens, and this actually goes back to my time on the UAA debate team. Um, one of the reasons I was thankful to be on the debate team is I often had to like put myself in a position where I was arguing like, for something that I like completely disagreed with, right? Like I would be, I didn't get to choose which side I debated. Um, I was assigned a side and I would have to spend an hour basically arguing in favor of something that I personally found terrible. And it made me appreciate, you know, respecting the argument of another person and to use a, a phrase that's kind of banal, just like putting yourself in their shoes. And I think something that happens now is when we encounter someone in the political arena that we disagree with, we have, we take like the worst possible bad faith interpretation of their argument mm-hmm. and then often use that as an indictment of their character, right? Yes. Where it's like you are opposed to Judge Corey's, uh, you are opposed to the campaign to remove Judge Corey, therefore you must be a misogynist who doesn't care about women. And it's like, no, that's actually not my point at all. My point is that we should think about the collateral consequences that removing a judge for being soft on crime or for being soft in your mind on crime, the consequences that will have, I do think the man who committed that crime should be held accountable. I think we should amend the laws to make that a sex crime. I think it's awful what happened. I think we should also do a better job of supporting and victims. They, and they, they did change the law. They did, right? Yeah, the legislature did change it. And they, they, they made it to what he did a, a sex crime. Right. And and I think, you know... There's this famous, <laughs> there really be, awkward... It's a tw- I should pull up the tweet, but it's Gabrielle Ledoux, who's got a trial coming up in August for the election fraud thing, but sh- she famously asks uh, Casey Schroeder from the Department of Law, would it be a crime to ejaculate into a yeah. woman's hand- handbag? And the whole room was like, is this really ha- like is this really a question that's being, you know, it was kind of... Right. 
And, but and, this, and, and, this is what happened during the, the debate or the right. this discussion in the committee about this about this new law. But I want to say, you know, again, to bring this back to the judiciary, I want to say that even if you or I or anyone didn't agree with um, removing Judge Corey, that, again, is the system working exactly as it should. That is exactly how Alaska system is designed. We have a merit-based selection system that tries to find the best available judges and identify them not based on political belief, but based on their skills as a, as a judge. And then the people still get a say on whether that judge gets to stay on the bench. And, and I would say too, it's also, I think in the, in the, in the way to defend it, I mean, it, it has to be such an extreme thing. I mean, it would be really hard to, to, to do this to a, a judge, just a, a small, a small group that let's even a, let's even a large group of people didn't like. It'd be really, really, really hard to. It is to, to campaign against them in there, a way that um, would end up or her would end up in um, not getting retained. When I was writing the um, the law review article, I looked at some literature reviewing something called the incumbency advantage. Right, that like incumbents in retention elections tend to have a, a really huge advantage and they really don't ever really lose their retentions. And this is a, this is one of the criticisms. I think there was one, I know there was one time where some judge did something maybe in Bethel or so, he did something real fucked up and, and yeah, it's he in was drinking. Article. Yeah. So yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah. He, 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 he didn't get retained because the, the council said don't retain him. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, again, like, like, so judge Corey was the first time that a judge wasn't retained after receiving uh, unanimous endorsement from the Judicial Council. Um, but there have been cases where the Judicial Council has not recommended Didn't some guy, was retention. this the guy um, who kind of made like a deal from the bench or something? There was some, some guy who was like doing really inappropriate things from the bench and people were like, whoa, dude, you can't do that. I don't remember exactly what he did and I don't want to misstate it, but suffice it to say he was not upholding um, himself as a judge on it the was bench. Like, it was some real loose shit. He was I, like making <laughs> deal, like he was like, Saying things, he sh I forget what it was, but it was some shit that was like, you might see in like a TV show or something, or movie. Uh, yeah, I, I remember re just like, like this is the Wild West. Right? It's <laughs> kangaroo court right here. It's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, we looked at something called the incumbency advantage. And, um, you know, one of the criticisms of Alaska's system is that it's really hard to remove judges, that people kind of default to saying, sure, why not? But my counter to that is, well, all of the Judicial Council's data is available to you. If you really, if you really, really want to do your homework and learn about these judges, the Judicial Council, prior to a retention election, they issue a very detailed, very lengthy report, and they look at things like, does the judge clear their docket off on time? You know, like, how, do they have... Uh, you know, it assesses their writing abilities. It assesses their ability to, to manage cases. Do my, they decide my, cases on time? Mike, while you're right, my counter to that would be most people don't even know much about the candidates, let alone like when you get to these ballots, I mean, it's like you got, you know, Senate, House, Governor, State, Senate, State, whatever. And then you got like maybe some ballot initiatives and then you got, mm -hmm. you know, how, however many it is retention. You know, I think a lot of people, the, the drop off on these, on these um, elections is huge. People just don't yes, really vote. And I think that a, a something that's worth exploring here is the extent to which the voting public, the citizenry, trust, have institutional trust in the council, right? Because well, if you trust the council and you believe that it is an apolitical body that does the professional work of evaluating judges, then I think it's fair to just say, I'll vote however the council mm -hmm. recommends I vote. You know, like they know more about this than I do. Well, they the, do the, other, the other concern is, and I've talked to, some people about this before um, who, who watch this, the 
percentages of retention over the last you know 20 years have steadily kind of, I mean, yes, they're still getting retained, but they're going down. Correct. So that, which, which tells me there's less and less trust in the council or the system. Cause most people be frank, if you ask somebody what judicial council is, they aren't, aren't going to know well, the average person. So there's a, there's a lack of trust and not just in the state, but nationally there's been polling about trust in government, trust in the, I mean, the Supreme court's now at an all time low and, 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 and trust by the public polling. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, every, every election there's, there's less and less, percentages of, you know, the percentages of, of, of retaining have gone down, which is, could be, you know, could, that could end up being a, a real crisis where, you know, if you have half the judges not being retained and then, and then who's going to want to be a judge, who's going to want to apply to be a judge. I agree. This is a huge problem. I think you're right to say that across the country, Get a little closer to the mic, Americans are um, losing faith in, in a lot of government institutions and the institutions associated with government. I think it's, going to cause problems for sure. And I think the lowering of retention pass rates or retention pass margins, I, I think there was one um, article that you know looked at retention margins in like the 1980s and 1990s and then the early 2000s. And in like the 1990s, you know, like it was like 75, 80% in favor of retention. And then it was like 60, yeah, no, it's, it's gone down, right? Like then it's, it's gone down. And so people are, are more skeptical now. Well, I, I hear a lot of like, I, I talk to people all the time about politics and you know, I hear a lot of people just say, fuck them. I always vote against all the judges. And I say, well, do you, I mean, do you know anything about them? I mean, do you, do you and, no, fuck them. I, uh, yeah, they're judges. I, I don't want to get rid of them. So that, that's a, what's their reason? Different different reasons. I mean, some some you know activist judges they just apply whatever reason they have in their mind to all, every judgment. Like just like you said before, somebody has an opinion. Well, you go down to this like worst case scenario of what they of, you know they're a misogynist or they're whatever they are. So in these similar you know thought pattern where it's like, well, one judge is bad, they're all bad. Yeah, I think if you believe the system is corrupt, then anyone who participates in that system, you know, by the transitive property of corruption or whatever, mm-hmm. um, is also corrupt. And I think that skepticism of institutions, I mean, especially when it's applied to the courts, it's its really unhealthy. And the one of the, it's unhealthy for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons why it's unhealthy is, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court and the Alaska Supreme Court, they don't have in, in, in enforcement power, really, right? Like... It's the trust in the institution that really makes people follow its decisions. Well, and that's this is what I've this is like a little bit unrelated to this, but I've talked about this a lot. Our system is all based on end of the day. It's all based on trust. It's all based on acceptance of a of of, of a system of of norms. Go back to this January. I mean, Pence. It was a formality. You know, it's never even been considered to to not certify the election. You know, if he would have not done it. And Trump wouldn't have left. I mean, what you know, if 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 the president or the governor wants to do something and nobody says you can't do it, there's no enforcement. You're right. There's no enforcement. I, I mean, there's the military. There's the, there's the, the law enforcement. It's you know on some level, but if if someone just starts doing things and nobody stops it, then that's it. That is so true. Um, in 2019, I think it was, I wrote an op-ed for the Anchorage Daily News that was called Dunleavy's Constitutional Hardball. Oh, and I think I, I remember. I, I think I remember yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so constitutional hardball is it's kind of a phrase used in academic circles, but what it means is conduct that is technically 
okay because there's no rules against it, but nonetheless violates go without saying rules or kind of first principles of governance. And I had um I had this professor. <laughs> I had a lot of respect for my professors in law school. That's why I ref- referenced them. But I um sorry for the listeners. There's just goddamn construction outside, and it's. It's construction season. It's always happening in Alaska. Like a jackhammer or something. <laughs> <laughs> like a big crane. Yeah, hopefully hopefully it's not, the mics aren't picking it up too much. Um, but, you know, I had this, uh, I learned constitutional law from this, um, this man named Richard Primus, who's just a brilliant constitutional law scholar. Something he would say is constitutional governance is a lot like playground basketball. Um, if you take advantage of every single rule, or if you take advantage of every opportunity that the written rules allow you to exploit, pretty soon there won't be a game at all, right? When you play playground basketball, there's no referee. There's no, you know, parents out there policing it. It's the kids playing amongst themselves and and kind of enforcing their own rules. It's kind of weird to say, but constitutional governance is the same thing. I think it's a great example. I mean, there's kind of norms that we we just have for a long time of just we accept. Yeah, and let me... And and nobody even thinks to... Until recently, this has been, you know, and, and there's a great book, um, Twilight of Democracy by Ann Applebaum that, yep. that talks about, you know, Hungary, they they, they, they just started, uh, the, the, the president just started knocking off judges. Yep. And, the, and no, no, can't do it. It's against the Constitution. Can't, not allowed. No one stopped it. Yep. Um, yep. I don't mean killing. I mean right. removing. I can give like... I can give like an extreme example of constitutional hardball to illustrate the point, and then I can maybe reference one of the the points I brought up in my my ADN op ed. So the United States Constitution. You're like me. Your phone's like blowing up. I'm the same there. way. I get all these damn texts. Um, I'm just so popular. Look at that man. It's like boom, 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 boom. Um, the United States Constitution allows for existing states to divide themselves into new states and allows Congress to create new states with the consent of individual state legislatures. So let me give you a crazy thought experiment. Remember my history professor, I have a history degree and that he always reiterate Congress creates states. Yeah. Congress creates states. So let me give you like a crazy thought experiment, hypothetical, um, you know, Massachusetts, super, super liberal state, you know? Um, well, I had Mitt Romney as their governor. But anyways, say, um, I'm assuming for the sake of argument that, actually, I'll use California as an example because that's where I live now. And, um, you know, it's considered like a very liberal state controlled by the Democrats. But the northern parts are more conservative. The I would say the inland parts are more conservative. And, like, north of the area, it can get pretty conservative, they, too. They, they, uh, they elected Reagan back in the day. They know? did elect <laughs> Reagan. I don't know if Reagan would be elected today, though, so I don't know about that. Um, so suppose the California legislature was like, you know what? We are just, like, sick of all, you know, conservative politicians. We're tired of it. So what we're going to do is we're going to divide the state of California into 50 new states, 49 of those states will be gerrymandered so that they are always Democrat, super majority every time. And then we're going to create this super crazy gerrymandered final 50th new state that has all the Republicans in it. We're just going to gerrymander the state. And then, you know, a Democratic Congress says, okay, cool. That happens. The United States Congress gets 100 new Democratic senators. Congress is blue forever. The Republicans will never be in power again. Not a word of the Constitution is violated in that. There is no judge that could step in and stop that process. The only thing stopping that from happening is elected leaders' self-restraint. It is elected leaders recognizing that well, if they, we they, do because, that, because in Texas would do it, and then and then there'd be a that, that's that's like lights well, that's a lights out. And we're starting to see 
some moments of that, you know, Texas recently passed a law that would essentially deputize private citizens to, well, not deputize is not the right word, but it would empower private citizens to sue in a civil lawsuit anyone who aids and abets acquiring an abortion. And and for the conservatives that I've talked to or the people that have that have said this is a great great thing to, and look, I'm I'm ultimately pro-choice. I'm I'm not a you know I think abortions. I really want to get into it, but I mean, it's, it's ultimately I'm, pro, I'm pro-choice, but I, I can, I understand and, and understand why people, a lot of people don't like abortion. I mean, I understand that. Um, but, but this is like a Stalinist state where you're having your neighbor. I and mean, this is what the Soviets did. They relied in many cases on people informing on their neighbors or their friends. And in many cases for things that weren't even true and people get carted off to the gulag. And in addition to that, going back to, you know, having biases and liking policies when they align with your beliefs, suppose the state of California, which is talking about doing this, passed a law that said, we're going to let private citizens sue anyone that aids or abets the acquisition of a gun, right? Mm-hmm. What, what yeah. Texas has done is Texas has said, look, I, Roe v. Wade will likely be overturned, but as it stands today right now with you and me sitting here, Roe v. Wade, Planned Parenthood v. Casey are the law of the land, a state cannot pass a law right now that outlaws abortion. Maybe in a month they'll be able to, but right now they can't. So what Texas has done is Texas has said, we will empower citizens to sue other citizens for taking an action that is perfectly legal in the under the U.S. Constitution. It's also perfectly legal in the under the U.S. I mean, Constitution I, I think my understanding is gun. even if you drove someone to the abortion clinic. Yes, that's true. Or, or if you picked them up and... Yes, that's helped, true. Took, ...took them home or whatever, just... Right, but it's it's so helpful to remember that, you know, whenever you engage in these, like, really extreme policies, if you get bl- blowback from it and then someone does it on the other side, it just becomes this, this, this exercise in escalation, right? So then the Democrats get in power, and now they're pissed. So now they're like, you know what? We don't like guns, so we're going to let citizens sue each other for acquiring a gun. Is it protected under the Constitution? Sure. The, the one thing I would say, you're right, but the one thing I would say is, you know, Republicans are not afraid to play hardball. They aren't. Democrats, for whatever reason, are just, and Bill Maher talks about this all the time. You know, he just talks about, like, why can't Demo- like why can't they be like Republicans and, and play, the, play the game they play? Because you're, you're, you're playing in a you know, really unfair game right now where one side is willing to do anything and the other side is not willing to fight back or, in some cases with Democrats, promote just the most ridiculous kind of, things that people just are like, you know what? I don't, I don't even care. That's so, that's so crazy. Some of this woke stuff that the public gets angry and then they vote for Republicans and the Republicans, like I said, are willing to play. And they have been for a lot. I mean, look at going back to Bork and, and, and uh, McConnell. I mean, this has been a, a mission for this guy for 30 years. There is a law review article called Asymmetric Constitutional Hardball. I can't remember who wrote it. It might have been Professor Tushnet, but I honestly I need to read recall. that because that sounds right up my alley. Um, and it describes the asymmetry between Democrats and Republicans in these constitutional hardball tactics, right? Doing things that can be exploited because there's no written rule against it, but nonetheless go against the principles of self-governance. And if we continually engage in a series of escalations, you know, again, to not, not to like uh, be, be extreme here or, um, you know, say that doomsday is coming, but, you know, to use the analogy of playground basketball, the saying is, you know, if you take advantage of every rule that you can, pretty soon there won't be a game at all. 
And if you keep engaging in constitutional hardball, pretty soon we won't have a constitutional republic. And I believe that, right? Well, like well, we keep in, and, and the reason I think, you know, the, my kind of argument against Bill Maher is when does it end, right? Like, it, 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 look, like I think it's true that Republicans are much more willing to play constitutional hardball. And I think the reason they're willing to do it is because they've won one popular election since 1988, right? Like, no, they, so they, the, 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 the Republicans won the popular vote and when Bush ran in 2004. That is the only time they've won the popular vote since literally 1988. In, in over 30 years, they've lost the popular vote every time but one. And when you feel like you are a minority and you can't use the democratic process to get what you want, you're much more willing to engage in constitutional hardball. I think... My counterargument to that is that, you know, the United States Senate greatly biases Republicans. Um, Democrats in the Senate represent tens of millions of more Americans than Republican senators do. Well, I mean, go back to Bill Maher. He's you know, talked about how, and, and I think this is a system, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't think we should change it, but California has, you know, what, 30 some million people? Texas, 20, you know, mm -hmm. 30 million. I don't even know. It's more than that, but two senators. Mm -hmm. Alaska, 700,000 people, two senators. Mm -hmm. North Dakota, South, South mm -hmm. Dakota. Wyoming, two senators, you know. It goes back to federalism, right? The idea is that, um, you know, uh, unpopulated states shouldn't be able to get bullied. And I can make that concrete, right? Like, Yeah, I don't think know, we like, should change it, but I think it's... Like, look, like, like <laughs> Alaska would get trampled by the federal government if we didn't have two senators in Washington who had just as much power, well, not just, who had... Equal, who had an equal seat at the table, yeah. right, as, as every the other 49 states. And I know that um, when the Constitution was being ratified, that was one of the big concerns, right? Like Rhode Island held out on ratifying uh, the Constitution. And, you know, one of the things that uh, the politicians in Rhode Island or the, the policymakers in Rhode Island were worried about when the Constitution was being ratified in the 18th century was like, well, we don't want New York, and at the time Virginia, we don't want New York and Virginia running over us. Right. Like we're a tiny state. If, if there's proportional representation, then we're just going to get completely steamrolled. And, you know, I there's kind of a movement now, like you see on Twitter, like the hashtag, like abolish the Senate. And I'm ambivalent about that. I understand the criticism. But one of the reasons that I'm not. Well, I should say I'm also ambivalent about expanding the court. People talk about adding more seats to the United States Supreme Court. But one of the arguments against that is. It just okay. Then the Republicans are going to do it next time they're in power, right? And then when same, does it same end? thing with the filibuster, right? Or, it's like you know, so many examples of. I mean, the the the, the Senate's. I think it's good. You know, there's two. Like we have most. I think all but I think all but Nebraska has a bicameral. Yeah. You know, most most countries have two. You know, you have a check. Right. So so there's there the House it, for, of Commons, the House of Lords in the UK. Yeah, and the Parliament. You know, you have this. You know, most parliamentarian systems the same thing. So I think it's um. It's good because you. I mean, you honestly like you want things to. You don't want it to be easy to pass laws because who's who, in charge is going to pass the laws they want, and then the next time it's going to go back and it's going to. It's just it should it should be hard to pass stuff. Yeah, there that are, was that was by design. It was and, by and design. Also, I should add that back in the day, up until the 19th century, I forget when they changed it, but the the, the legislatures used to pick the senators. Yes, they did. And then that that, that became was in another the original constitution. That became another like, well, we want to pick them. The people, you know, want to. Yep. Famously, Lincoln was going to be a, you know, he was trying to be a senator. He couldn't get the votes and uh, was deadlocked, you know, 45, whatever. There was one guy that was getting five or six votes. It was against uh, Douglas, uh, Douglas, Stephen Douglas. And Lincoln famously conceded 
because he was just terrified of a pro, you know, pro slavery person. And the guy who was getting five and six votes ended up getting it because Lincoln withdrew. And then later the guy who his agents helped him become president. It's kind of a team of rivals book. Right. But, but it was a big fight. It was a floor fight. There was like, there was like many, many dozens of rounds of voting and they couldn't get to 51. And he just realized, look, if, if it's Douglas, we're going to have a problem. And he stepped out. He had, um, he had the most votes, but not 51. There's a guy named Fareed Zakaria who I think is on CNN. Oh yeah, um, but Fareed Zakaria. What's, what's his? Uh, he wrote the, he wrote a book many years ago. I I what's the his show college. called? Uh, um, I don't something know global. Oh, there's like a show on CNN. CNN but I've, um, he's been on Bill Maher a couple times. I like he has. He's, he's a smart dude. Um, he wrote a book called The Future of Freedom, and one of the observations he makes in that book is that you know <laughs> what characterizes the United States compared to other democracies throughout history is not how democratic it is. It's actually all the checks it has against democracy that it, it it has it is as you put as you you know mentioned it's hard to pass laws and there are checks and balances that prevent a tyranny of the majority from imposing their will on the minority and <coughs> well, the more those institutions become eroded the more we trend toward what's called illiberal democracy well a, a real you know ultimately a democracy is heard this before it's it's three wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner <laughs> right. right i mean you don't i mean some i think switzerland maybe is the most the biggest example of, of kind of the direct you know they come together in the cantons and they everybody votes and it's more direct but um to have that kind of which i, I think is just i don't think it's a good system but to, to even advocate for that kind of system people have to be very 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 informed yes and, and i and i think when you have a country as large as the United States with hundreds of millions of people um, who come from a variety, right? We have, we have a multicultural, multiracial democracy. Um, and, and that's hard. It's, it's hard to have a democracy when, you know, a, a lot of the people living in that democracy have pretty radical priors, and, and are moving from different first principles. It's, it's hard to self-govern. Self-governance is messy, right? Was it Winston Churchill that said democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others? He also said one of my, my favorite Chur Churchill quotes was, um, <laughs> the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and, you know, before we did this podcast, you and I were chatting about the you know, getting back to Alaska, the Judicial Council and and and, and solutions or, or, you know, ways that Alaska's judiciary could be changed. And, you know, what I said to you then and what I'll repeat now is change it to what? Right? Like, it's easy to, to find imperfections. This is going back to the convention question, which a lot of people are, you know, it's always gotten about a third or a little more. Mm -hmm. It's been up, it's, this is a six, well, 72, 82, 92. This will be the sixth time. Um, it'll, it'll be up for, you know, every 10 years. So um, I feel that this judicial question, as long as well as the permanent fund dividend and other kind of main, main issues, abortion, I think there's going to be a big push for it. And I think it could happen this time. I, I, uh, yeah. And if it, if it does, and if there is serious talk about amending the constitution um, to, to modify the judiciary, you know, I hope people keep in mind why we have a judiciary and what a judiciary is for. Because again, if, if the argument against the existing system is, well, you know, I just don't like that the judges are voting in a way that is not aligned with my political beliefs, that is a bad reason to change mm -hmm. the judiciary. We have a legislature that serves as the voice of the people. You know, the judiciary's allegiance is to the rule of law and to the Alaska Constitution. And 
when people push back on merit-based selection or find criticisms of it, my, you know, I'll, I defend it because I, I, I truly believe that Alaska has, if not the most well-functioning judiciary in the United States, one of the most well-functioning judiciaries. And look, like, I'm not the only person that says that. Legal scholars throughout the country point to Alaska as a system that works really well. Um, Erwin Chemerinsky, who is one of the nation's leading legal scholars, he, he might be the most cited legal scholar. Yeah, he came here and spoke a couple yeah, ago at the, he loves Alaska. I went, I went and saw him actually at the UA. It was probably five or six years ago, maybe longer, but great, 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 great speaker. Yeah, if you saw him, that might have been the same. Remember he came to that smaller, th- not the big theater at UA, but the the art, the arts building? Oh, that's okay. I know what you're talking about now. So he, during that same trip that you're talking about, that was when I presented the paper that I wrote with Bud. Mm. Um, and he gave the keynote address at... Um, the Alaska Law Review Symposium, where I presented the paper. That was fascinating to to listen to him. And he's he's brilliant. And, you know, he just sings the praises of Alaska's judiciary. In fact, he wrote he wrote a book. I think the book was called Against the Supreme Court. I read it many, many years ago. I read a good chunk of it many, many years ago. Um, and he makes the argument that like maybe we should do something like this at the federal level. You know, maybe the federal government can learn from Alaska's example. So, you know, I will I will defend Alaska's judiciary because I think it works really well. And is it a perfect system? No, but to invoke a banal platitude, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So when people talk about changing it, my question is change it to what? And how is that going to be any better? Because if you change it to a system where, say, the governor just say we abolish the judicial council and we we run it similar to how it's run at the federal level, where the governor just appoints whomever he or she chooses and, um, you know, there's confirmation by the legislature or whatever, you are going to get a more politicized judiciary. 100 percent. You will you will get you will get judges and justices that as compared to the composition of the judiciary today, I think are more vocal about their political biases and will issue decisions in an attempt to get the attention of, of the governor as kind of like, I'm your guy. I'm your guy. Right. Like, like I all I will vote the way you want me to vote. Right. Like I think one person once told me that they, they want to abolish it. They they think it should be like you said. Governor chooses, Senate confirms, and then or legislature, and then there's also a retention vote. That that's what they and you know they have their own view of it, but that that's what they. I don't know how a retention vote. <coughs> I mean, it doesn't solve the problem of initially appointing and confirming and placing judges on the bench that are more partisan. And look, we, we talk about this in the paper, but um, Florida had a system that was in some ways, in a lot of ways, similar to Alaska's. And they modified their system to give the governor greater power in selecting judges. And as a matter of empirical data, those judges more frequently uh, expressed political beliefs, whether it's through like political registration or, or other uh, proxies for determining you know, political orientation that were aligned with the governor. Well, there's and, like, and you know, the nationally, there's the Federalist Society, which provides, you know, I think names and they have their people that, yes, for the, you know, conservatives, hey, these are, our, these are our people. We, Amy Coney Barrett was a Federalist Society member and um, Clarence Thomas, you know, um, all, I think Gorsuch. As far as I know, all of the 
Republican appointed U.S. Supreme so, Court so, justices. So, so going back to this hardball, why don't I mean maybe they do? But do the Democrat, do the liberals, do the Democrats have a group like that? Like, they're, do they have their group? Like why don't they have their group? Like, uh, so there's an organization called the American Constitution Society. So they've never even fucking heard um, of it. You yeah. know? <laughs> like I've heard of Federal Society. Many they they came here and spoke. Uh, me and my buddy Lee Baxter went to a year or two ago. Maybe it was before COVID. We went. This guy came and spoke about you know what's going on with our, our system in Alaska, but there was a whole event. I mean, it was kind of packed. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I think there's kind of a few things going on there, but um, the Federalist Society is so much better, miles ahead, um, much, much better at what they do uh, than the American Constitution Society. And I think it's for a few reasons. I think a lot of it comes down to funding. Um, I think that the Federalist Society just has a lot more resources, but I also think that they're better organized. I also think that, um, there's a lot of infighting uh, on the political left, and I think, you know, it's it's often said that the left tend to eat their own, and um, I think yeah, that's that's. I mean, I'm, I'm looking right now. I just this is just a, um, comment on that. That you know, Biden's you know, all these people are wondering what's going to happen with Biden. You know, if he's going to run or whatever, and 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 the Democrats that are talking. I mean, they 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 can't get behind. I mean, if you're not exa- like, especially with the, the radical, the, the the far left. It's like if you're not with us, you're our enemy. Yeah, and, I mean, I think I think that happens like on the who, right too, right? Like going back to when Republicans accused of being rhinos were it, 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 it does, expelled it, from the party, it, or it, it does happen, sure. But you know, like Republicans being censured if they don't support it, Trump. It's 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 obviously happening on the right side too. But with, with it, just seems with 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 Democrats sometimes it's 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 just kind of purity test. And you're right, it happens. I'm not saying it's not happening on the right too with the rhinos or the, you know, the anti-Trump Republicans, but it's, um, you know, end of the day, you you have to, you have a couple of choices usually. And it's like, who do you, you know, who do you pick? Right. And a lot of people, it's like, well, if they aren't hundred percent, then fuck them. And Republicans, end of the day, they can usually kind of rally behind the person who's not the Democrat. Sure. You sure. Know, that's just kind of how they, are, they, they think. And I, you know, I think, I, I was never, I was neither involved in the Federalist Society nor the American Constitution Society. Um, I, I wasn't really interested in law school, and I'm not interested in, as an attorney in kind of being a member of what are perceived to be kind of political advocacy groups, though they would disagree that they're political advocacy groups. I think the Federalist Society likes to say they're not a political advocacy group. You know, they don't, they're like, we don't file lawsuits, we don't put our names on amicus briefs, um, you know, we don't testify before Congress, but it's like, it is, it is a bad fate. Oh, I mean, they're, they're definitely, they are, the they political. are an advocacy group and they have, they have clear goals that I, they I, pursue. And I, I think I it's also, disingenuous to say that they're not an advocacy group. I also don't think they're bad. I mean, they, they have people who have beliefs. I don't think they're bad. You know, I, I hear a lot of people, the fucking federalists. I mean, they, they look at them like the, you know, the people that don't like them, look at them like they're like evil or the enemy. I mean, no, they just, they're just a group of people who have certain beliefs on, on how the, Judicial system should work. Yes, I I think that's true. I do think the complaint of the Federalist Society is that um, they have a very opaque funding structure, and so it's not clear to me whose interests they represent. And so I think when, you know, I don't think that having a jurisprudence or having 
a, a theory of the Constitution that aligns with the Federalist Society is bad at all. I mean, again, this goes, but we're, we're like a multi, I think you can be an originalist in good faith. I said at the beginning of this podcast that I'm not an originalist. That doesn't mean that I think originalists are bad faith actors who use originalism as some sort of veil I mean, to I mean, mask, How was you know, it that, that Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg could be like best friends? Yeah, you know, I mean, how's that? I mean, that's that's fine. They they were miles apart on the shit. Yeah, and I and I look like again like I think that there are which, which is a good thing that they're friends. And I think that like originalism, while I don't agree with it, I think you can be you can totally be an originalist in good faith. You can totally believe at the bottom of your heart that a, the original public meaning should be the animating principle of the constitution and it should be the guiding star we use in interpreting the constitution i don't think that being in a, this goes back to another thing we were saying about how like assuming that someone holds a belief differ, different from your own means that like you're somehow a bad person like i don't think originalists are bad people i don't think that they are acting in bad faith i don't think they're using originalism as some sort of veil to mask a political agenda and so Sometimes they might be. <laughs> Some, sometimes they might be. I also th see, think that sometimes, I mean, this is a conversation for another podcast, but I think that because original sources speak in multiple voices and aren't hierarchically organized, trying to pull from the ocean of historical material where sources contradict each other forces judges to use their personal biases. I think originalism literally like by definition requires judges to use their personal biases because they have to make tough choices about what historical sources to cite a really good example of this. And this is a total nerd thing. I don't expect you or your listeners to do this, but um, there's a famous Supreme court case called DC versus Heller. It was decided in 2008. Justice Scalia wrote the majority opinion. Oh, yeah. What is that about Heller? I've heard about that. DC one. versus Heller. The, the United States. Thing? Yes. Held that um, the second amendment um, protects an individual right to possess a firearm in the home. The question before the Supreme Court in 2008, and by the way, I think people forget that like, they're, everyone's like, oh, we've had the Second Amendment for centuries and you know we've had it since the beginning of the Republic. And it's like, yeah, but it took us until 2008 to figure out what it meant, right? Like, what about the other 200 and odd years, right? Like, what did it mean then? But anyway, I mean, like, you know, I just, I just, just real quick, I'm pro-gun, I have guns, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm I guess, pro-Second Amendment. But I also think, like, right to bear, bear arms. I mean, like, the, 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 there's a limit on that. I mean, we can't have, like, people can't be going around in tanks. I, mean, I guess some people have tanks, actually. But you, sure. can't, you can't buy fucking, like, missiles. And, you know, you can't, I mean, I'm, you, there's certain things you can't have. Well, so so we, do lim we do limit what people can have. And I mean, the text of the Second Amendment itself, arguably itself imposes a limit on the right to possess firearms. The Second Amendment says, and I think I could have this memorized, it's a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of, the, of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And something that Scalia did in D.C. versus Heller is he argued that what he called the prefatory clause to the Second Amendment, which is a well-regulated militia talking. Uh, being necessary to the security of a free state, does not limit the operative clause. In other words, just because the Second Amendment includes this throat-clearing statement um, announcing its purpose, that does not limit the operative phrase, which is, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But the point I was going to make is this. Go read Justice Scalia's opinion in D.C. versus Heller. I think people should. It's like one of the most important Supreme Court cases of all time. It is the Supreme Court case that codifies an individual right to own firearm. Because the question before the court in Heller 
one way of understanding the question before the court in Heller was whether the Second Amendment protects what's called a collective right to own firearms. In other words, the federal government can't disarm a state militia. Um, the state militia, you know, the people that comprise that militia, the people whom that militia protects, um, have rights to keep and bear arms. Or does the Second Amendment protect an individual right to own firearm that is divorced from or disconnected uh-huh. from militia service? So go read Scalia's opinion. Then go read John Paul Stevens' dissent, who engages in an originalist exercise. He says, fine, I'll meet you at your original, I'll, I'll, I'll fight you on your originalist turf. I will argue against you on your originalist grounds. They cite like completely different sources that say completely contradictory things, but Justice Scalia got five votes and John Paul Stevens got four. They're not historians. There's no list of hierarchies that tells us which sources are more authoritative than others. The The source material speaks in literally contradictory How far, how far did they go back? Many, many decades? Or? <sighs> they, I mean, they went back to like the King's Court cases in like the 17th century England. I mean, they went way back. They were trying to understand. So they probably had their clerks, hey, go find me some shit. Yeah, and look, like, again, I don't think that Scalia or any originalist does this in bad faith, but if you are looking at literally mountains, use whatever geological metaphor you want, oceans of information, mountains of information, just tomes of books and treatises on the historical sources, you have to have some sort of system from for separating the wheat from the chaff, for getting to the source material that you think is most authoritative. And I, my fundamental criticism of originalism is this. Because these original sources speak in a variety of voices and are not hierarchically organized, judges are all but forced to use their personal biases. And I don't think they do that in bad faith. I don't think they're doing so with like their political agenda. I think they believe that they're getting to what is objectively the right answer. But history's messy, right? Like the people who wrote the Constitution disagreed vehemently about, you know, what what it ultimately meant. I mean, like the Constitution—it mean, almost, almost didn't go down. Totally, we, right? We, like, had, we had for what thirteen years, we didn't even have a Constitution. We had these Articles of Confederation, right? Yes. That were like people were kind of like different money and different all this stuff you know, problems, and and we almost, you know, fucking. War of 1812, England almost got it back. And then we had to have Hamilton, you know, write Federalist papers, getting back to something we talked about at the beginning, to try and persuade state legislatures to ratify the Constitution because it wasn't a foregone conclusion. It wasn't obvious to the people, to, to, the, to the founding fathers, that the states would automatically just rubber stamp pass there was, it. There was big questions of, like, we don't want your debt. Total, there state's were, debt. We don't want to take that on. Or, we, you know, we want to, we want to do our own thing. And then, obviously, the, the big question that was discussed even back then was slavery. Yeah. You know, that, that took fucking 80 years to figure out, you know? The, the Constitution, the United States Constitution, is a, is a product of, of compromise and a product of vehement disagreement. And I, mean, I think I, it's important to like note that slavery was the question. I mean, that was what they yes. called the unanswered. I mean, yes. what, what people, slavery, um, the most horrible institution in our, in our history, I think. But back then, there was people that were against it. And they had to, you know, have this compromise, which many people said was kind of the, you know, that was like the evil compromise. Right. It, and, you know, it, it poisoned the whole country for, you know, decades. Yes. I, uh, yeah, this is, you know, very, very contentious issue. Um, 
something too. Uh, now you got now see Jeff. What have you done? Now I'm all like fired about originalism. We were supposed to talk about the Alaska judiciary. We're, we're on like an hour thirty, and, and I, I know you got to be on the airport. Uh, yeah, soon, and so. I and here we are, you know, talking about Brett Fraser's understanding of originalism. But well, this, the, been good. We, this has been fun. We got to do it again. I, I'd like that. I, I mean, I I like talking about this stuff. I you know I I enjoyed law school, and I like being an attorney. I think you know a lot of people attorneys joke about how much they hate their jobs. I don't always like how much I have to work. Um, but I ultimately enjoy what I do and I, I really enjoyed law school. And I enjoy, and I think these are important questions too, whether you went to law school or not. I, I think, you know, everyone who's voting and cares about gun rights should read DC versus Heller. I mean, go read it. Like seriously, listeners, if you're listening to me, go, you can get it for free in PDF from the Supreme Court's website. Go read DC versus Heller and read Scalia's majority opinion, read John Paul Stevens' dissent, and then try to figure out why the sources in Scalia's opinion are more authoritative than the sources in Stevens' opinion, right? Like, and it was that's five, it was tough. Five, it was 5-4. It was 5-4. Five, five, four. Four. Five, four. Yep, 5-4 five, four. Five, four decision. There's also, I mean, there's a, a lot of interesting stuff in D.C. versus Heller, too, because Scalia, I, I don't want to get this wrong, so I won't try to quote it verbatim, but Scalia has a few lines in the um, opinion where he says, look, like, this is a pretty narrow holding. This only applies to keeping a firearm in the home for self-defense. And it doesn't mean that we can't, you know, prevent felons from acquiring guns. You know, states can still impose reasonable restrictions on firearm access. And one of the issues with like the whole gun control debate is <laughs> the most minor suggestion about even the most like sensible and gentle firearm regulation is treated like an assault on the second amendment. And we're going to go down the slippery slope where, you know, the government's just going to take all my guns. And yeah, it's like, no, I, that's I, such, that's such, that's like, that's I mean, ridiculous. I mean, my, my view. And, and like I said, I have guns, I have rifles and pistols. And I'm a gun owner. I, 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 I grew up shooting. I don't, I don't really have any, and I think most Americans pulling on this is pretty clear. I don't have any problem with the universal back. Like if I'm going to sell a gun to you, Privately, there should be a background check. Yep. Like, what is the big? Why does that? Why is that a big deal? That's a great question. Maybe she gets on the podcast to, 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 explain, to explain the big I've, deal. I've, there. I've dealt with some of these NRA types, and I see Manjuno and some of the NRA lobbyists or people, and you know, I talk to them, and we have. But I mean, they, they, you're, it's just I'm not sure if it's political or if it's just what they really believe. But they think any any moving the goalpost at all opens it up to doing other stuff. And they, so they just, they refuse, you know, to do basically anything. You know what I think it is? Well, I, I think it's a lot of things. One of the things I think it is, is um, I think it's really just about like identity. I think a lot of people who, um, their entire identity is that they, they own, collect, and use firearms. And when the government tries to pass even very gentle and very non-restrictive uh, firearm regulations, they see it as an attack on their identity. It's really not about the universal background checks. It's about what does it say about me as a person that the government is trying to make it harder for me to get a gun. And so I, mean, I think they see it as, you know, an attack on their 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 character. And I, and I actually think this is one of the problems with, here we are, we're supposed to talk about the judiciary and I'm talking about political polarization, but I think one of the problems with political polarization is, um, people on the right and the left um, both get their identities really tied up in their political orientation. And, and it's really well, especially not... Especially in, in the last ten, five, ten years. Yeah, and so voting, voting stops becoming about, you know, your policy preferences, and it stops becoming about um, 
policy at all. And it really becomes about what does voting this way say about you as a person? What does voting Democrat, voting Republican, supporting Trump, opposing Trump, what do those things say about you and say about your identity? And that's why I think that there's a lot of like contradiction that we were talking about earlier, right? Where like um, conservatives will, um, and liberals do this too. I'm, I'm not trying to pick on conservatives, will stand up for states' rights when that state happens to be uh, a Republican-controlled state fighting against or, or you know, standing up against the big, bad Democrat federal government. But then when President Trump tries to violate the anti-commandeering doctrine, well, now all of a sudden, you know, we hate the state of California. And who are they to tell the federal government in its supremacy um, you know, how it can conduct its well, business and, 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 and how can they be obstructionist? And so it be, because it's not in, like, I think in a lot of cases, it's not about states' rights. Again, it's, just, it's, it's like it's about being in a political tribe. It's about being in a particular group and it's about your well, personal identity. Well, there's the introspective kind of how does my politics, how do my politics identify me and who do I support? But there's also the other problem when I look at you or anybody, when people look at each other, well, how do you support that person? Fuck you. I can't, I mean, I can't be even look at you. This happens increasingly with families and friends and you can't even, people can't even talk because they voted for Trump or they voted for Biden or they voted for this Republican or that Democrat, which I mean, to me is like, I don't even know how people think like that. I, I'm trying to I grasp, agree. I try to grasp it. I'll talk to anybody. This is, you know, and I have a lot to, of friends who are very politically different than me, but yes. we talk, you know, we, it's fine. And to kind of, plug the debate team real quick. Um, you know, one of the reasons I'm thankful I did debate is, is that I think debate as a pedagogical activity teaches people to really engage with people they disagree with in a way that is respectful and in a way that, you know, focuses on critiquing arguments rather than critiquing people. Right. And I, and I think that that is a skill that, that, that in a lot of ways uh, we've lost. You yeah, know, no, and, 100%. And, you know, I think there's a temptation to, again, I think it's there's a temptation. We want to be seen in our political community as our best selves, but we define our political adversaries by their worst selves. You know, one of the ways I, um, you know, I have family members that I, that I disagree with politically. I have friends that I disagree with politically. And something I find, you know, frustrating in a lot of these conversations is, um, and this is actually something that I think the Russians exploited in the 2016 election, but um, is, you know, let me illustrate this with, with an example, right? Like you get someone who goes to a Trump rally and then they like, you know, they're opposed to Trump and they find like the most racist, the most batshit crazy person at that rally. They interview them and then they throw that interview up and they broadcast it and they're like, this mm -hmm. is like the average Trump rally person who's just saying like totally off the wall stuff, right? Like completely insane stuff. And then they, they, they portray that as if this is like a mainstream view. And, and, and then the and, conservatives and the do it too. They go to the women's march and they find the most same kind of thing. You're right. The most aggressive with a pussy hat and just the craziest stuff. You're right. Same thing. And they portray and they portray that. I, I see it on YouTube all the time. The right. videos, both right. sides. Look get at the, the crazy woke radical left, and they will find like what in their eyes is like the most radical, the most woke, the most like off the rails person, and then be like, "This is the left." And it's like, well, no, that's like an extreme instantiation of the left, mm -hmm. and that's one person who you know probably makes for great television, but isn't representative of that entire you know political community. Um, I think 
I think one of the, you know, tr- Trump was, was a little difficult just because like, I mean, he, he would just say and do things that were, um, definitely a, what I call a loose unit. Yeah. That you, you like that phrase and he was, he was loose <laughs> for sure. He was definitely still, loose. Still is. Still is loose. <clears throat> well, I know I gotta, you gotta run the airport and I gotta have a meeting pretty soon, but this has been, I mean, I was thinking we were going to do 30 or 40 minutes on the judicial council and we're, uh. We're at an hour forty almost. Well, I hope and, that and there's. I, I think we could go for another two. I could go for another two hours with you. Yeah, I love talking about this stuff, so I'm happy to come back anytime you want to invite me on. All right, so folks, again, Brett Frazier, attorney Brett Frazier, and you're uh, living out of state now, but you're going to come back at some point. That's or the what's, plan. What's the deal? I'm, I can't say too much because I, you know, maybe my employer's listening to this, but um, well, we'll have to get. Once I'll, you, I'll, I'll put it. I'll put it this way: if if there's a way for me to move back to Alaska but I can continue doing some of the work that I'm doing now, I would take that in a heartbeat. Maybe I can try to, when I get rich, I can, I can set you up with the Brett Frazier show on the Alaska landmine. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again for coming in, Brett. Have of a good course. trip back and really, really fascinating discussion. I, uh, it's good, you know, people talk about this stuff. They don't talk about it too often. So right. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Cool. Well, uh, we'll, we'll do it again sometime. Sounds good. All right, folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me. And if you're, Following us on iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, please give us a, a like and a review. We really appreciate that. And stay tuned for the next one. Landline.